Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Yale Admissions Office. My name is Mark, and I'm a Yale Admissions Officer. And I'm Hannah. I'm also a Yale Admissions Officer. If you are a regular listener, you've probably heard us plug our email address, yaleadmissionspodcast at gmail.com, where we welcome your suggestions for future episodes. Well, we get a lot of emails, and yes, we actually do read them all, even if we don't necessarily respond to them all. And today we wanted to actually tackle a few interesting emails that have come in. Some are some follow-up questions related to previous episodes, and some are episode suggestions that we do want to talk about, but they aren't quite enough to build a full episode. Right. So today is going to be our first ever mailbag episode. A few of these we actually think are great suggestions for full episodes. So stay yes. tuned. Um, we will be doing a few of those in the next few months or so. Yeah. And some of the episodes we've recorded already have come from suggestions uh, from the inbox. So yeah, keep them coming. Guess what, Mark? Today, we have a very special guest on Reed. Thank you so much for having <laughs> me back. It has been great walking three feet from my desk right to the studio. It's finally happened, folks. The <laughs> stars have aligned. It took us almost two years, but we are finally recording in Reed's office with the man himself. So, Reed, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. Um, we're going to encourage you to write to that Gmail address. Um, but if you have an urgent question that's about the application process, about your application specifically, emailing yaleadmissionspodcast at gmail.com is the absolute slowest way to get an answer. <laughs> so slow. We have lots of other ways. So just quickly, um, admissions.yale.edu slash questions is our online form. You can also call our office during um, business hours. That's probably the best way if you've got a specific question. But if you've got a question about the podcast or a suggestion or some feedback, the Gmail address is the way to get to Hannah and Mark specifically. You know, I know when you submit a question to a web form, it feels like it's going off into some black hole of web form questions. But we do really, you know, go through those every day. All right. So we've got a, a mailbag full of questions that are really good conversation topics. Let's start. Um, this is a really good one. So the exploration of my Christian faith has been essential to my personal development and has even influenced my academic goals for college. I've heard, though, that it's risky to write about religion or that it could quickly become a turnoff in essays, and I was wondering if you could dedicate some time to talking about how to approach taboo topics such as religion. I think the first thing that I would say is that topics such as religion aren't necessarily taboo. Mm -hmm. As long as you're thinking critically about what you're saying and writing reflectively about a personal experience, uh, those topics are open seasons so to speak. Yeah, I really wouldn't characterize any particular topics with a few exceptions as being risky or taboo. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we talked in one of our essay episodes about something like bathroom humor mm. that I would call taboo. I would just call that a bad decision and a bad <laughs> use of the space. Right. Um, but generally speaking, if you are giving mature reflection and insight to something, you can really go in just about any direction. Um, the important thing is that it's important to you. And, you know, from the person asking this question, it seems like this is important to them. And so it sounds like it could be a really good, productive topic for one of their essays. Yeah. Um, I think a trap that some people fall into is if they choose a topic that feels a little bit riskier. Um, they might write about it with a little, they might try to distance themselves uh -huh. a little bit from the topic. And that just kind of 
makes it a little bit worse because then you're losing the sort of personal reflection side of it. So if you are going to write about something like that, make sure, like Reed said, you're really, you know, being reflective about it. And I think it's a good place to start to recognize that our admissions office staff is really diverse. You know, you shouldn't Mm. make any presumptions about the people who are reading your applications or who are going to be in the admissions committee. We really pride ourselves on reflecting a wide variety of backgrounds um, and identities. We also like our work because we get to meet really interesting students with all kinds of different backgrounds and identities and and beliefs and values in the application process. So um, if it's important to you, it sounds like it could be something that could be great to share. BL is a place that really actively celebrates all kinds of different belief systems, um, identities, backgrounds, etc. So if that's important to you, it could be a really valuable asset for your application. Nice. And I'll just make a quick plug. Uh, check out our previous episodes on our, um, you know, what works and what doesn't work in college essays. Yes. All right. Next question is from someone who listened to our uh, earlier episode on the activities section of the application and says that because of the pandemic, they've realized that their activities list sort of looks like it has two parts, the activities that they did before quarantine and then a chunk of activities that they picked up during quarantine. It doesn't necessarily show commitment because these were opportunities that became available once all this time, this person had all this time on their hands. So what are our thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. I think you need to remember that everyone, everyone in high school and everyone in the world was (laughs) going through something a, a bit similar during this time. Your list of activities may not look exactly like you want it to look. It may not look anything like you imagined it looking when you began high school. But it's important that it's a reflection of who you are now and what you have ended up doing during this year and a half and during the years before. Yeah, I um, I read files internationally and it's it's been a, a good reminder for me to see that, you know, the pandemic has disrupted everyone, whether I'm reading in Bulgaria or Kenya or mm-hmm. New Zealand, everyone has mm-hmm. run up against this issue. Yeah, and it is interesting that there are some activities that sort of were disrupted more than others, right? Um, We have, you know, we're in our second reading cycle now, sort of since the pandemic. And so we've seen a whole variety of sort of pandemic impacted activities list. Um, Some of them look sort of very sort of strikingly similar to things that we were seeing before the pandemic. Many of them look quite different. It has a lot to do with the specific activities. It also has a lot to do with a specific area. Um, You know, Mm. it might just be that your high school or your county or your state said that certain things were okay and they weren't okay, you know, down the road or across the border somewhere else. So we aren't going in with any sort of presumptions. Just use that space to tell us what you've been doing. It might have been more of a linear path. It may have been a sharp U-turn and them could be absolutely fine. As Mark alluded to, part of the benefit of our geographic reading model is that we can apply this context not just to what's available within your high school, but what has been available to you in your school, in your area, in your county Mm -hmm. during COVID-19. Yeah. And, you know, just remember, it's we're not just trying to understand, like, how you spend your hours and what you do. We learn other things that are a little more subtle from your activity list, right? Mm -hmm. We learn about what's important to you. We learn about, you know, your resilience, your priorities, and how you've responded to the opportunities available to you or opportunities that suddenly weren't available to you. Yeah. And I think that there's kind of baked into this question, um, a kind of Um, presumption that the strongest activities lists are those that show 
you know, dedicated commitment mm. to a passion, which right. which kind of assumes that even, you know, pandemic aside, that you kind of arrived in high school fully formed and, mm-hmm. you know, ready to dedicate yourself wholeheartedly to whatever, you know, handful of activities were available to you. Yeah. And that's just not the case, right? Um, you know, high school and college are times for exploration. There are times for trying out new identities and new experiences and new commitments. And so if that's been the case in the pandemic, maybe it was, you know, fruitful and exciting. Maybe there were things that, you know, you tried, you didn't really like. As Hannah was saying, all of those pieces tell us a story. You don't mm-hmm. need to try to kind of wrap it up in a bow and say, well, these are the things that I've been passionate with a capital P about for the entire time. We understand in, in any circumstances, there's going to be kind of a, a mixture of things, maybe that are new, that are old, that you were trying out, that you found were a new passion, all of the above we see in activities list. Yeah, as it should be. Um, All right, we have another activities question. I love this question. I think it's really interesting. The student received advice from their counselor that they should not put their time spent reading on their activity list. Mm-hmm. Um, and this person kind of goes in, goes on to explain, you know, how reading is important to them, out the hours in the day they spend reading across genres, how, you know, his friends and family have nicknamed him the librarian and he's sought out for his book recommendations. So... Is this worthy of inclusion on the extracurricular list because it's not a, quote, official activity? Mm -hmm. So this is something that you get to decide entirely for yourself. Perhaps this is something that you would like to spend an essay discussing. Perhaps you don't feel that it's quite that important or that you want to use that space for something else. And you'd like to include that on your list of extracurriculars. That is wholly your decision. And if it's something that is important to you and meaningful to you, then that's something that is completely worthy of being on that list. You have to remember that the extracurriculars aren't solely the traditional items, work, clubs, sports, etc. They're also things that you do in your free time. Simply sitting down and reading a selection of books that have meant a lot to you is something that you do. That's how you spend your time. And I know that this can be sort of maddeningly open-ended, yeah. just like the essays, right? We talked about the essays and how they can be super frustrating because they are different than the more directed writing that you're doing typically in your classes. The activities list doesn't have a lot of guidance and directions in terms of what should be on mm. it and what shouldn't be. That's an opportunity. That's an opportunity for you to try to tell your story and try to share what's been uh, important to you. So I know it seems sort of crazy and potentially anxiety inducing that we're saying like, there's no rules here, like just use the space. (laughs) Um, But we, you got to think about it from our perspective. We're looking at tens of thousands of applications from all around the world, all kinds of different experiences. We kind of think that the less that we can sort of overlay at the Mm. very beginning in terms of what should and shouldn't be in there is going to allow different students with different activities um, and commitments to really let those things shine through. And maybe on your activity list, you don't just list, you know, reading and one hour per day and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, give us a little bit of the uh, of the context that you gave us in the email, you know, a, a list of the range of authors that interest you or your unofficial title as librarian to your friends and family, that kind of detail on the activity list can sort of help give context to, you know, why you've chosen to include this activity. And I feel like this question is just like a great reminder that while it's totally good to, you know, seek out advice on the application process, nobody knows you better than you know yourself. Mm-hmm. You know what's important to you and you should go with your gut and, and you know, include things that you feel are important to include. Now, one of the things I liked about this question was that it specifically mentioned that the person asking it 
is swapping book recommendations with other people yeah. and you know is talking with us about others that would be a great thing to include in the activities list sort of section about this right mm. um mm -hmm. remember the activities list it's not a matter of sort of getting points awarded for certain things or like adding up you know commitments and leadership titles and all of that we're trying to form a picture of who you are and we're especially trying to form a picture of who you are as a member of various communities right and so if there is an element of an activity that involves other people definitely include that in the list if it's something you do completely on your own great too that's can certainly be on the list but if it's got that other element make sure that that's part of the uh the write-up that you put in the application one thing that I really liked about this question is that they listed some authors that they loved reading and Stephen King was on the list and I'm uh, a big Stephen King fan, so I appreciated VIP, that. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> we have some questions from people who listened to our teacher recommendations episode. Um, and one student is wondering whether we make allowance for the fact that teachers in some schools have an easier time getting to know their students than teachers in others. So for example, if um, there's you know a class with fewer students in it, do those teachers have time to write longer and more detailed letters of recommendation? And how do we take that into account? So as we say time and time again, context is going to be key here. I actually try to address this question in every information session I give, oh. because I think it's an important one in general to really sort of reinforce that context point. Uh, we are looking at every single letter of a recommendation, whether that's from a teacher, a counselor, an outside source, with that contextual lens. Um, even within a school, how long the teacher is taught for, how many mm -hmm. classes the teacher has taught you in, um, all of those things are going to be important. This past year and a half, whether the teacher taught you in a virtual context or in an in-person classroom, uh, we're applying sort of all of those layers to each letter of recommendation. And so we aren't looking necessarily for the same things in each letter. I would say that um, you know, length and detail do not necessarily make a stronger letter of recommendation. Mm -hmm. Also, I've read some very strong recommendations that happen to be short. I get the sense that the teacher doesn't have a lot of time to sort of wax poetic about mm -hmm. the student on and on, but they still know if they want to, you know, push for the student that they're writing for. Yeah. So rest assured that your context is going to be an important part of our evaluation. Um, as you are thinking about the teachers to write on your behalf, though, do think about it as an opportunity, right? Think about it as a chance to expand our understanding of who you are and the contributions you make to a classroom. And so think carefully about the teachers who are going to write on your behalf. I, I think sometimes people kind of tie themselves in knots trying to be overly strategic with the specific subject area or, you know, something maybe tied to their prospective major. And at the end of the day, it really comes down to those teachers who, who know you best. Um, and in my experience, those are the teachers who are most likely to provide the kinds of insights in their applications and, and take the time to provide something specific, even if they've taught you in a really kind of large setting like that. We have another question about teacher recommendations. I've asked a teacher for a letter of recommendation and they've agreed enthusiastically, but asked for a brag sheet with activities and accomplishments. Is this a red flag? Mm. I know letters are meant to be personal and about the student's engagement in class rather than a regurgitation of accomplishments. And now I'm a bit anxious about using a letter from this teacher. So this is not necessarily a red flag. It's not helpful if a teacher is simply regurgitating items that you have given to them. However, there is no way to know whether a teacher will do this or yeah. won't do this before they have written the letter of recommendation. And if you <laughs> check that waiver box after they've written yeah. that letter of recommendation. Um, if you are 
ask to submit a list of activities or accomplishments, it might also be nice to slip in some things you're proud of from the class you mm. took mm -hmm. with them mm. so that they can get their memory jogged a little bit and can talk a little bit more specifically about what you've accomplished in their specific class. Right. You can't write their letter for them, but you can provide some sort of reminders. And if you have a project or paper in their class that you're really proud of or a time you improved your performance, that little reminder could could certainly help. Speaking as a fellow control freak, along with uh, at least <laughs> Hannah, I, I don't know about you, Reed, but I certainly consider myself that. This is one of those things you aren't going to be able to control. Um, right. And you can control who you're, who's writing for you. You can do all the reflective pieces I was talking about earlier, but you don't get to write the letter, and that's as it should be. And what a relief <laughs> that you don't have to write that letter. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Please don't try to write the letters. That's, that's no, a bad idea. No, no, no. Yes. <laughs> All right, uh, we have one more final question for now. I was wondering if you could do a podcast on when, if ever, it is okay to contact your regional admissions officer. Mm -hmm. If it is inappropriate, then who do we contact to get more information about programs? Should you write to your admissions officer if you're visiting campus? So how do we feel about that? So I think it's important to first say that at Yale, there is absolutely no benefit to befriending your regional admissions officer. Right. Uh, they might make a lovely pen pal, but that mm -hmm. is not going to help you um, in the committee process, in the application reading process, even if they are giving you some helpful advice um, in terms of how to navigate Yale's resources for the application process for you personally. I'll take that a step further and say that I am not a lovely pen pal. I have too many applications to read. <laughs> there is an important sort of a bit of variation among college admissions offices here. I think if you go on different admissions office websites, you're going to see that some like ours don't list any sort of public directory or listing of sort of which admissions officer is assigned to which territory. You won't even sort of see who's on staff mm. on our website. And that's because, as you heard, we aren't tracking these things and we're not going to encourage you to reach out. There are other schools that do the opposite, where they put the regional admissions officer kind of front and center, and they want to encourage students to connect with that person in advance for their, for their questions. So sort of take the lead mm. from what you see presented on the website. That'll give you an idea of kind of what we're what we're looking for. None of us are going to be grumpy or like, you know, scribble off some note in your file if you send us an email, you <laughs> right. know, to one of us that should have gone somewhere else. But we may very well sort of forward it to the team of people who are answering questions that day if it's not really something that needs one of us to answer it specifically. Yeah. And remember, you know, we also switch up our territories mm -hmm. pretty regularly. So keep in mind that if in your junior year you you want to reach out to your admissions officer, a different person might be reading your high school um, when it comes time for you to apply. I also have to say that if you do want to know about specific programs or departments, while you can submit questions to admissions.yale.edu backslash questions, the best possible thing to do here is to do your own research. Yes. Yeah. Uh, admissions officers are not encyclopedias of knowledge about <laughs> right. each university. Mm -hmm. uh, the Google search that you're doing to figure out about the psychology <laughs> department is the same Google search that I'm going to be so doing true. to find out about the psychology <laughs> department. Yeah. So true. Um, and by the way, things change once students are admitted and sort of the volume of these questions is, is greatly decreased. We just can't be that encyclopedia for every single prospective student. But once students are admitted, 
then your admissions officer will be very eager to, to talk to you about yes, your questions. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, these were fantastic questions. Thanks to everyone who submitted these. Um, we really appreciate the thoughtfulness that you've put into them. And you guys came up with some great topics. If this has, you know, piqued your interest about something else that you're curious about and you think would make for a good conversation, shoot us an email at yaleadmissionspodcast at gmail.com. Remember that those specific questions about your application or you know something that you're just wondering about about the admissions process should go to admissions.yale.edu slash questions, or you can call our office. No, we don't have a 24-7 customer support <laughs> staff standing at the ready. If only. But uh, we will try our best to address your questions in a timely manner. Yep. We love to hear from you. We hope this has been helpful. Reed, thanks so much for joining and helping us answer these questions. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Thank you, Reed. And of course, thank you also to our friend and colleague, Jill, who is both our sound engineer and a great admissions officer. Reed, you get double thanks for lending us your office. It's a great place to record a podcast. Thanks, uh, of course, to former admissions officer Andrew Brick Johnson, who composes our music. You should check him out at andrewbrickjohnson.com. If you have comments or an idea for an episode, drop us a line at yaleadmissionspodcast at gmail.com. And finally, remember that the views expressed in this podcast are ours and don't necessarily represent those of Yale University. Thanks for listening.